Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately 1,000 churches in Kansas and Nebraska. As the title of this podcast suggests, I'm not ordained clergy, so what I share comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 20 years of experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teens to 90-somethings, and I'm excited to share what Scripture has to say to us in today's society, and I love to tell stories of how people live their faith. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes include interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. And other episodes include some short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. The world is finally starting to reopen. Just more than a year since we started sheltering in place due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The vaccination rates are up, kids are going back to school in person, businesses are opening back up, and people are returning to pews and churches. Now, let's be clear, it's not safe, not yet, at least not completely, to fully return to what we called our normal lives. Infection rates actually are increasing. And as of this recording, we have at least 13 states, including Nebraska from the Great Plains Conference, that has seen cases surge by more than 25% since March 1st. Eventually, things are going to open up again. I have faith in that point. In a way, it's like we will be returning from our own deeply personal exiles. Exile from seeing family and friends. Exile from dining out at our favorite restaurants. Exile from sporting events, concerts, and other gatherings. Exile from what we once considered normal. That word, exile, it's weighed heavily on me the past few months. As I've shared in previous episodes, I started just after Easter in 2020 reading the Bible each day in chronological order following the guidance of the book, A Chronological Tour Through the Bible, by Dr. Ron Rhodes. I added into my daily reading the apocryphal books, the first time I've actually ever read those. And again, I read them when they came in order chronologically. I'm currently studying my way through the Gospels, but two historical Old Testament books that I've read before, but admittedly not paid all that much attention to in the past, Ezra and Nehemiah have continued to be the focus of attention to me as our current world is starting, albeit slowly, to reopen. The more I meditate on what is said in these two sometimes overlooked Old Testament books, the more I'm convinced that the lessons within the scriptures there have important truths that we can not only learn from, but that can help us prosper as we continue our faith journey in a post-pandemic world. During the shutdown, many of us have enhanced our spiritual disciplines and practices. For example, for the first time ever, I'm journaling each morning. That's totally foreign for me. I had to learn how to do it and get used to it and make it a habit. Others have hung tight to whatever they were doing pre-pandemic. But others have struggled. Either because of stress from the pandemic and its many impacts, or maybe because they've lost someone to COVID-19, or because they just didn't have that weekly reminder and encouragement from gathering at a church with fellow Christians. For one reason or another, they haven't engaged in daily prayer, Bible study, and meditation. If you buy into the idea that it takes 60 days or so to form a habit, 
And then you consider that we are now 13 months into the pandemic in the United States. It means we have an uphill battle to re-engage people into the life of the church and to jumpstart their faith practices. Now, yes, online worship and Zoom small group meetings have been incredible tools to keep people connected. I can't imagine what life would have been like without those two things. But face-to-face -face interaction simply can't be topped. And let's be honest, the pandemic may actually have caused some of the so-called spiritual but not religious people among us to at least consider becoming part of a faith community, or at least to explore their faith on their own. I'm reminded of what Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. How plentiful? Well, a Gallup poll released at the end of March showed that only 47% of U.S. adults belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. That's the first time in the poll's history that less than half of American adults claim such an affiliation. That's down more than 20 points since 2000. Yeah, Jesus told us the harvest was plentiful, but he also said that the workers are few. So my question to start today is, are you ready to work? We need to ask ourselves, how can I help? I mean, both for the person looking to re-engage and for the person just starting to explore his or her faith. How do we help them meet the risen Christ? How do we help them understand that their God loves them? Over these next few episodes of In Layman's Terms, I hope to help us explore these two key points. Points that I see as I read Ezra and Nehemiah. One is the importance of rebuilding our society as a whole. Not just building it, actually, but reshaping it. Making it what we want it to be. And second is even more important. It's about recentering ourselves to focus on our faith, both individually and as a body of believers connected by our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. To understand what I hope to share from Ezra and Nehemiah, I think we first have to take a brief detour through the history of the Jewish people in Israel. So buckle up, let's take a quick spin through about 1,200 years. Don't worry, we're not going to linger too long in any one place. Jacob and his growing family moved to Egypt to avoid famine. After growing larger and larger, the new pharaoh of Egypt considers Jacob's descendants to be a threat so he enslaves them, and they remain in bondage for about 430 years. After that time, God raises up a leader for what we now know as the chosen people. That guy's name is Moses, and through miraculous signs of God's power, the Pharaoh eventually lets the people go, with Moses leading them out into the wilderness. But there's a catch. The Egyptian Pharaoh decides that he's just lost all of his laborers. He needs them back, so he goes in pursuit. I'm skipping all kinds of cool parts of the story. God using the Red Sea to rid the Israelites of their Egyptian pursuers. Pillars of cloud and fire, bread from heaven, quail for protein, water from a rock. All of these are parts of a story that make the book of Exodus such an entertaining and important narrative in our faith story. Moving on, the Israelites fail to show faith in God upon coming to the cusp of the Promised Land. So they're banished to the wilderness to roam for 40 years. 
They eventually enter the land we now know as Israel, and they take over the majority of that area, from east of the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. For a little over 300 years, Israel was a mishmash of 12 tribes, and whenever trouble arose, God would rise up judges. Now these aren't judges in the same way we define that role today, as someone who just settles disputes. No, these judges were more like military leaders or wise sages to help settle the people and organize them to overcome a challenge. Eventually, Israelites decide that they want a king. They weren't happy with God being their king, they wanted an earthly king like all the people around them. God gets frustrated and finally says, fine, you want a king, here you go. So Saul is elevated to that post. He's succeeded by King David and then David's son Solomon. With these last two men, David and Solomon, Israel enjoys the pinnacle of its power and influence. David fully unifies the 12 tribes into a single kingdom, and Solomon builds the first temple to God, along with many other grand building projects in Jerusalem. But after Solomon, things go downhill fast. In fact, the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom, keeping the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, now known as Judah. With few exceptions, the kings that come after Solomon, the kings of these two kingdoms, well, they lead the people further and further from the one true God who rescued the people from Egypt. Israel, the northern kingdom, eventually is conquered, and the people are taken into exile anywhere from about 732 to 722 BCE by the Assyrians. The book of Second Chronicles tells us that a remnant eventually returned, but we're left to assume that the bulk of the people led off in this exile eventually scattered. The southern kingdom of Judah fares a little better. It eventually is conquered by the Babylonian Empire and its people are exiled in three waves, with the last one coming in about 586 BCE. After 70 years and the Babylonians being overtaken by the Persians, the people are allowed to return to Judah. Well, that's a quick recap of 1,200 years. And that's where we pick up our story about Ezra and Nehemiah. Now that we're caught up on the Jewish history, albeit a very, very brief recounting of the chosen people's past, let's dig into the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. These were two men who lived in the same era and who had complementary tasks. Nehemiah's job was to rebuild Jerusalem, especially the wall and with it the societal cohesion that comes with shared goals, restoration, and, frankly, defense. We can grasp the enormity of that task, can't we? I mean, at least in a small way we can understand it. We're not rebuilding a wall around a city, but we are facing the very real task of rebuilding a society post a pandemic. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. That basically means Nehemiah was a high-ranking, top, and trusted servant to the king. In those days, you gained power by killing the person in the seat, and so it was not at all unusual for someone to try to take power by poisoning the sitting king. So the cupbearer was an important position. It meant the king had ultimate trust in that servant, that that person wouldn't try to kill him. Nehemiah is serving in his role with that king when men from Judah arrive and tell him of the terrible conditions there. Now work was being done, a man by the name of Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple, but the city was in ruins. 
and a city in ruins means the people were defenseless. Those who were there had no means to protect themselves. They were vulnerable, vulnerable yet to more oppressors, to wild animals, and even the elements. It also meant that the people there felt an incredible amount of shame. I mean, the grand city of Jerusalem was in shambles. Nehemiah prays, and then asks the king that he be allowed to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem and inspects the damage. He understands the situation. I mean, he grasps it pretty fully here. And he assesses the enormous task ahead. And then in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he addresses the people. I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem is in ruins, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we won't continue to be in disgrace. I told them that my God had taken care of me, and also told them what the king had said to me. Let's start rebuilding, they said, and they eagerly began the work. And work they did and they achieved a tremendous feat. For reference, according to a U.S. Census Bureau report, it takes on average about six months or 180 days to build a house in the United States. The people of Jerusalem built a wall, a wall almost two and a half miles in length, eight feet thick, and almost 40 feet high. And how long did it take them? According to Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, it took them 52 days. Less than two months. That's just incredible. Now, my guess is it's going to take us a lot longer than 52 days to rebuild our society in a post-pandemic world. But I do believe that we are called to rebuild it. The wall Nehemiah built was not as large as the one that had been there before. The city, post-destruction by the Babylonians, was smaller at that point. Things had changed. They were not going to be exactly as they were before. But the people enthusiastically said, let's start rebuilding. I hope and pray that we meet this challenge the same way. What do we want our post-pandemic society to look like? Instead of rebuilding structures, I would argue that we are rebuilding people. We're rebuilding support systems and societal structures that help us to connect one another. And we can do it better. I really believe we can do it better. What will it take for us to rebuild the world where we truly have justice for all? Where race is something we notice but don't separate people because of it? Where age, socioeconomic status, gender, sexual preferences, and myriad other dividing lines we've created as people just don't matter? One of those tools for connection in Jerusalem, at that time anyway, was the temple. Long before Nehemiah started rebuilding the wall, a man named Zerubbabel was at work rebuilding the temple. Zerubbabel was the appointed governor of Judea, and he was the person given the mission of rebuilding the house of God. His work is recorded in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, and you can read more about him through the works of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. 
The temple was significant because it represented the way people corporately worshiped God. Today we do so by attending church, but singing together, saying prayers, responsive readings, and listening to sermons together is only a part of it. The temple was much more than that. The corporate worship of the people centered on that structure. It's where sacrifices were made and where rituals cleansed the people of their combined sins. Thanks to Jesus and his sacrifice and resurrection, we don't need a temple. The human heart, part of God's creation, is where God resides now, not a stone and mortar structure. While the wall later could be rebuilt in 52 days, the temple took almost 20 years. Now, it may have only taken three years or even less, but the work was interrupted by people in the surrounding area who convinced the Persian king that if the Israelites could rebuild the temple, they would cease to be loyal followers to this human-made kingdom. One small but interesting part of the story that I want to draw your attention to comes at the very beginning of that temple rebuilding process. I want to focus on this point because I think it also gives us a clue as to how we need to approach our post-pandemic world as it relates to the church and our faith journeys. Ezra chapter 3 tells us of the people beginning to worship God again in Jerusalem, and the people are starting to work on rebuilding the temple. They choose to do so on the high point of the land there, on the very same location where the first temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. This is where Solomon had built the grand temple a little more than 400 years before. The people were gathering around the foundation, and there's much celebration. Except, there are some people who are not quite so excited about this new temple. Let's listen to Ezra chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. They praised God and gave thanks to the Lord, singing responsively, He is good, His graciousness for Israel lasts forever. All of the people shouted with praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and heads of families who had seen the first house wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this house, although many others shouted loudly with joy. Did you catch that? Verse 12 tells us that the people who had lived long enough that they had seen the first temple they had seen what Solomon had built, with its enormous features and grandeur. They looked at this comparatively small foundation and knew that it would not match up to the temple of their memories. They were grieved at the enormity of their loss. These people remembered what the temple was like before, so they wept aloud. Even amid the joy felt by many, these people lamented the loss. I think we kind of face a similar situation in our post-pandemic world. Our churches probably will not look the same post-COVID-19 as they did in February and early March of 2020. We may very well lament the loss, the loss of people, of programs, of the feel of our home churches. We might feel like those older priests, the Levites, and the heads of families. We know what our churches looked like and felt like we might grieve the loss of those feelings. Or, or, 
we can be like the others in the crowd from Ezra chapter 3. Yeah, we could choose to be sad at what we've lost. Or we can celebrate that we have a new beginning, a chance to reinvent ourselves. We can celebrate and be joyful that a new foundation is being laid. This time, though, it's not a foundation for a building, but it's a foundation for our faith. How we rediscover it, how we nurture it, and more importantly, how we share it. I pray that we, as United Methodists, as Christians, as people in the world today, I pray that we choose joy. Let's embrace this new reality, whatever it looks like. We have no idea, but let's build. And that's my goal for these next few episodes of In Layman's Terms. I hope to tell stories of how churches and individuals are re-engaging with their faith communities and with their own spiritual disciplines. In some cases, churches are not back together yet, and we certainly don't want to encourage people to do something that's not safe. But sometimes planning takes time. So what can we do now to prepare? How can we plan to enhance our practices and the practices in our churches and invite new people to be part of these congregations? I plan to talk about two concepts that I've studied over the past few months. Gathering versus connecting. Gathering is what we all long to do again. It's so important to us. We want to be back together. We want to be face to face. But it's important that we know that gathering is for those of us already part of the faith community. Connecting is outreach. It's helping people not part of a faith community discover how uplifting such an affiliation can be. Now, it's not to swell attendance numbers or to help with the offering plate, but it's to help people find what so many have been missing since the pandemic started and we entered into our in-home exiles. It's about connecting to other people. Now, I have a few stories to share, and we'll do so continuing to explore how the actions of these churches and individuals correlate with what we read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But I would love to hear even more stories. I would love to share them. So if you or your church are doing anything to help people reconnect, or if you're planning to, if you're doing something to emphasize the acts of worship, Bible study, prayer, generosity, or service, please share those stories with me. My email address is tseifert, T-S-E-I-F-E-R-T, at greatplainsumc.org. I also have a link to my email in the show notes. Let's work together to build and to reinforce the faith of others by sharing our stories. Let's start now to rebuild our society and build an even better faith foundation for ourselves and for our world. In Layman's Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And please, if you feel so inclined, share us on Facebook or other social media. 
Our music comes via a licensed subscription with First Com Music. You can find archive podcasts on my website, toddcypher.com, or via a link on the conference website, greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts. Feel free to email me any questions or suggestions to tcypher at greatplainsumc.org, and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.